Good morning. It's, uh, you can just leave it there. That's great. It's great to be here. It, it is a blessing. We, have, we do feel like we're partners in this. We say, uh, I have this thing that I do at my, uh, the gathering that I'm uh, usually a part of, and I say, we took all the churches in the Bay Area and we added them up. We get a grand total of, and everyone is supposed to say, one. Um, Christ only has one church. We meet in different locations. We speak different languages. We have different expressions. Some of us, like, we get our hands really high, and some of us, maybe not so much. Um, but uh, there is Christ only has one church, and it's, it's just been a privilege for me to, to kind of walk alongside, to kind of see this from the, the, the dream and the um, initial moving that God stirred in, in David and Cindy's heart. Um, the launch team met at our facility for a while, and I got to know, and our elders got to pray over them, and, and then to see, you know, I was here actually the, the very first launch date I was here, and to kind of see that, and, and then to be here, to be the very first person that David trusts to be gone, and to teach, wow, that is, either really believes or he's really desperate, I'm not sure which it is. Um, I, let me also say, Hey, I, I have no real skin in the game, so um, so I believe this is the truth. Uh, you have good leaders. You have good leaders. Uh, David and Cindy in, in particular, um, they are the real deal. They not only have amazing talent and amazing ability, but they really, they really do love you, and they really do love this community, I can tell you. Uh, and most of you probably know them even maybe better than we do, but uh, they definitely have other options. Uh, at least Cindy does. I don't know about David. But, um, but they, they really care. They really care about Jesus, but, but it doesn't stop there. They, they, they love you and want you to grow in him, and they want those who don't know him to be connected to him. So it, is a, it a, truly is a blessing for me to be here. Uh, let me tell you just a really quick background of, of myself. On my dad's side, my grandparents um, started in the early 1900s in Russia. Their uh, family background is they were Jews that were in Russia, and they lived in little villages in that area uh, practicing uh, Judaism. And it was also about the time that the Tsar... Uh, kind of like Hitler decided, you know what, um, this, our country would be so much better if it wasn't for the Jews uh, that were here. And so they began to kind of stir up uh, some turmoil, and um, many of the Russian Jews began to leave. Uh, my grandfather learned the family trade. My grandfather was a, a, a tailor. Um, now, some of you might be thinking, okay, this sounds a little bit like that musical Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> Um, it, it is actually, <laughs> but it's not. This is truly our family, our family's story, uh, Russian Jews, and and so we we watch that musical, and it's like this is kind of our family history, if you would. Other than the fact that my grandparents didn't meet there and arrange marriage, they met here in Philadelphia, and um, and my dad was raised in this little Jewish community. And, um, and his, he was growing up and established himself. He got involved in radio before there was TV in its heyday. And it took him all over the country um, in terms of his, his work. 
And along his journey, he encountered a group of men uh, through a breakfast called the Christian Businessmen Association. And it was businessmen, so he initially got involved because it was business contacts. And he began to go to this breakfast, and he began to hear stories. And uh, something clicked for my dad. Uh, he had been taught from his youngest days um, that um, there was an expected Messiah, somebody who would come, that God was going to send, that would kind of restore the ultimate, if you would, kind of utopia. Um, but it was just kind of something way out there, maybe kind of. And um, he began to put the details together and began to see Jesus as that promised Messiah that he'd been raised to uh, learn about from his earliest days. And um, Somewhere along his journey, he met my mom, who did not start out as a, a Christ follower either, but had also become a Christian, and their past kind of uh, merged. And so I was born into this Christian family, um, but it was, it was a little unusual. We went to a, a little Methodist church. wasn't anything spectacular about the church. We were there every Sunday. Uh, sang hymns out of the hymnals, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the unusual thing is that once a month on Saturday, a group called the Hebrew Christians, Jews for Jesus, you might know them as, uh, would gather at our house. And other folks like my dad who had Jewish backgrounds would come together and they would talk about their Judaism and they would talk about Jesus and they would talk about the new life that they have in him. Uh, as a matter of fact, the guy who uh, led that was taking Hebrew lessons. And uh, in the Jewish tradition, the way we teach our children uh, Hebrew is we use the scriptures. Um, it's called the Tanakh. Um, you, you all refer to it as the Old Testament. Um, but Jesus just referred to it as the scriptures. And uh, we refer to it as the Holy Scriptures as, as well. And so uh, you learn Hebrew as you're going through the Tanakh and as uh, this leader of our group uh, was learning Hebrew, he was learning from a rabbi, and they would come across certain passages, and he would just ask questions. He would just say, that, that's interesting. You think he's just talking about now, or he's talking about the future? He says, oh, that, that's interesting. Uh, you, think, you think that's talking about the Messiah? And he would just ask questions, and this rabbi began to ask questions himself. And soon he began to join the group, and lo and behold, uh, after several months of, of meeting, he began to introduce himself as a pre-Christian. Um, the reason is, is, is because he saw himself drawing there, but he was a rabbi. And for many of us in, in the States, maybe, I don't know if you were raised here or not, but in many of us in the States, Christianity is just, you know, it's another club you belong to. You know, it's like a bowling league. You know, it just happens to be what you do with your Sunday morning for a lot of folks. And so there's not a big consequence to becoming a Christian otherwise. You know, you give up your Sunday morning. But, but in Judaism, um, there's pretty much uh, Jewish and then the roadway to hell, which is Christianity. And, uh, and to choose that direction is to turn your back on your people, is to turn your back on your God. And, and so for this rabbi to, to make that step and then become a Christian was a big deal because he was giving up his entire life, his entire community. I remember um, that my dad um, always grieved because um, when he became a Christian, his parents kind of cut him off. They were, they were, he was dead to them for a long time until his grandkids came along. It's amazing how grandkids can change that perspective. But, 
Um, but it was a big deal. And so, you know, when, when David said, hey, you know what, we're going through this series called One God, One Story. Uh, I'd like you to teach. And, and it's all based on this conversation, one of my favorite conversations, the road to Emmaus. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. This conversation when Jesus is walking with a couple of Jews, and he takes them to the scriptures, not the Bible that you have, but he takes them to the Tanakh. Okay, and by the way, the Tanakh uh, is, is the same books that you have in, in, in your Bible called the Old Testament. It's made up of the, of the Torah, which is the first five books, the, the writings, which is the, the major writings and storyline, and, um, and then a little bit of like the poems and stuff like that. It's three sections, but it's exactly the same books. And Jesus takes them through those books, and he says, listen, how could you miss this? It's been talking about me all along. And he explains what happened, why it happened, um, and, and, he, and they're just, they're, the eyes are illuminated as they go through the Hebrew Scriptures. And so uh, today, I want to I do that. I want to take a, a, the next step. Um, we're going to look at three kind of things. If you're a note taker, if not, don't worry about it. But we're going to look at the Word of God. We're going to go right to the text in Genesis chapter 22, the plan of God and then the work of God. So let's start with the Word of God. If you have a Bible or you come up on the screen or you can use your phone, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's always good to make sure that it's really there. We're not making it up. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis is the very first book uh, in the in the Bible, whether it's the Hebrew Scriptures. You'll, you'll, I don't refer to it to the Old Testament because obviously I have issues, as you can tell. So I'll, when I say Hebrew Scriptures, just translate that to your brain, to the Old Testament. Um, so the very first book in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures is the book of Genesis, chapter 22. And it, it starts right off by saying, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now I want to pause right there. We're not going to pause too long, but I want to pause right there for a couple things. First of all, background. If you remember from last week, right, uh, David took us kind of uh, through the passage and said, God approaches this guy named Abram. He's not living right, but he gives him an opportunity to say, he basically says, trust me. And if you trust me, I got something phenomenal for you, for your descendants, and ultimately, he says, for the world. And so Abram trusts God and, and moves. I, I know we're in a moving society, so it doesn't seem like a big deal. But in this day and age, it was a huge deal. It was a huge leap of faith. It, it was um, a, the kind of move that would make most startups look secure. Really. And so he, he, he makes this move, and God shows up in, in different ways. And one of the promises that God says is, you know, I'm going to give you many descendants. And Abraham says, that's a great thing, God. I like that idea. The only thing is, do you understand how this descendant thing works? I kind of need a son to get, have descendants. And so the first thing he does, it, it doesn't happen for a long time, right? And so Abraham does what we do a lot of times. Uh, I know God wants this for me. He wants to bless me. He wants to do this for me. So, and he hasn't done it yet, so maybe there's something I can do to help him. And so they come up with this thing, and, and uh he has a child, not with his wife, but with her servant. And they're like, oh, okay, well, this is, this is the promised one. And God shows him, says, nice try. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, okay? Uh, and he says, nice try, but that's not what I was thinking. Um, and in their old age, when, it, when it's past time, when it's obvious that, that uh, it can't be humanly done, they have a son, his name, they name him Isaac. 
I mean, they're, they're, in their, they're close to 100, both of them. And they have their firstborn son. Woohoo! And, it's, and, it, and, and God just is, I mean, there's just a story after story how God miraculously provides for him. And then we come to Genesis chapter 2, and it gives us this thing. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, the reason I want to start there is because this is really important to note. See, in essence, what's happening here is the writer, Moses, breaks the third wall. You know, if you're watching a movie or something like that, sometimes when, you, when it starts out the episode, it shows you. It shows you something that the main character doesn't know. It shows you that in the suitcase there really isn't a nuclear bomb. It, it, it shows you that, you know, Darth Vader's his father or whatever the case may be. It, it gives you a little glimpse that, that the actual person in the, in the story does not know. Which means that later on, when something happens and things are going, the character begins to go nutty. And you're like, you're, you don't sweat it as much. Or if you're like me, you're yelling at the TV, you idiot, it's your son, or no, it's not real. Or but that's because you have a perspective that they don't. So this is really important because what's about to happen in this story seems like, are you kidding me? God's really going to do this? But you've got to understand it's already told us up front, this is a test, a test of the emergency broadcast system. Don't freak out. I'm telling you what's going to happen ahead of time so you don't freak out. So then it goes on, the first couple of verses. He, God tested Abraham. He said to him, God says to him, Abraham, Abraham, I love this. Here I am. Here I am. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, by the time this happens, Abraham and God have there's a lot of water, if you would, underneath the bridge. They're, they're buds. Uh, if, if you're familiar at all with the, the movie or the play Fiddler on the Roof, one of the things I love about it, one of the main character is a character by the name of Reptevia. And what I like about Reptevia is the way he talks to God. To me, it's the perfect prayer life. Because it's not, oh, God, thou shalt. And, you know, it's, he's just, he just talks. He talks to God. And at one, at one point, I remember his horse comes up lame, and he's walking down the road, and he's like, God, he says, I, I understand you might have something against me, but what do you got against my horse? And he says, God, you know, sometimes I think that things get so boring up there that you're like, what mischief can I play on my friend Reptevia? And that's kind of what I, that's kind of the relationship that we kind of see here with, with Abraham is, is, you know, they just talk. They're just buds. Now, it's not a, a completely an equal relationship because God shows up here and says, I got, I got a major Request of you, Abraham. He says, I want you to take the thing that's the most valuable thing to you. Now remember, this, this son, this son Isaac, is the fulfillment of God's promise. It, it, it is everything that God has said that he would do for Abraham is in Isaac himself. Without Isaac, there is no promise. There is no fulfillment. It all falls apart. And God says, this very thing that I fulfilled, this very thing that I've done for you, that you've been so happy about, that you've been bragging to everyone about, that you and your wife wake up every morning and say we're blessed, I want you to kill it. And, and, and one of the big deals here is he says, it's the son that you love. Your heart is connected to this one. This is going to hurt. Now, Abraham's freaking out. 
He doesn't say that, but come on, he's human. He's freaking out. But you and I, we don't need to freak out because we know this is a test. Okay? There's a lot of questions. Well, how could God ask him to sacrifice? God doesn't. Now, Abraham thinks he is, but we know God's not. We've already been told that. This is a test. And so it goes on. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded up his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay with here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there, and we will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now, this is just a normal process. Uh, Abraham often gives an offering to God, and there's a, a couple reasons for offering. And this isn't just true, by the way, of the, of the Jews and, and its historical roots, but many nations around the uh, world do this. The, the first is an, an, offering, an offering really saying, hey, I'm taking something that's valuable to me. The, the most valuable thing you have other than your land is your livestock. And to either burn some of the uh, um, crops that you use to feed your family or to kill and offer up, it, what it's saying is, this is worth a lot to me, but I trust you and I honor you. I honor you by giving my best. There's another thing that we're going to see kind of developed uh, later on, and, and that is there's, there's the idea that um, to break relationship, we call it sin often, but to break relationship. Um, requires a price. And the, to break the relationship of life requires life. It requires blood to be sacrificed. And so there's a, there's a kind of a tick for tack, if you would. When you break relationship, especially with God, uh, it requires a sacrifice. And so for both things, this is just a normal part of the process. So he tells the guys to stay. He's going to take this chosen son. This is going to be a father and son kind of a thing, a special moment. There's nothing to indicate they knew what was up. But Abraham, or I'm sorry, Isaac figures something out, uh, verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father. This really, I mean, see, dad. Yes, my son. This is a great, should be a great moment. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. See, Isaac noticed something was out of the ordinary. Uh, as they began to go up, he began to kind of list everything in his head, you know, that you need for an offering. Wood, check. Knife, check. Fire, check. Sacrifice. We got a problem. Dad, what's up? Uh, you forgot something. Abraham says, no, God's got something else on his mind. And they continue to go on. Verse 9, when they reached the place God told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. I wish I had the ability to to do the musical background of this scene right now. You know, you can just hear the music. You know, it's kind of low and somber when he's putting it together. And then you can imagine the puzzlement of his son when he begins to bound him. 
doesn't say there was any fight. doesn't say there was any discussion. I imagine there was a lot of that stuff going on. These are human beings after all. But it doesn't give us any of that background. But it does paint this picture where it's, he sets it all up. He lays his son down. He lifts up his hands. And, and you, you got to wonder what is going on in his head. What is Abraham, what is Isaac thinking? And, and the text doesn't tell us, except there is this kind of, if you would, this, this uh, writer's pause as the knife is, is, is lifted. And later on, in what we call the New Testament, the writer actually gives us a hint of what's going on. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, you might want to write that down, check it out, make sure it really says what I'm saying it says. But it says that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's what he reasoned. He reasoned, listen, God, I've been waiting for decades for this son. And God has said, Isaac is the one. It's not like I'm going to have more sons. I might, but God was specific. Isaac is the one. He's the one that we're going to have more families from. He is the one. But he said, sacrifice him. So Abraham concludes, you know what? God's just going to do, just like I had a son in my old age that was miraculous, I'm going to kill my son, and then God's going to raise him from the dead. But it doesn't get that far. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied, just like when they first met. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. What a moment. Now, if, if you're a true reader, if you're, if, you're, if you're just reading through this, if you're a, a Jew in the scriptures, you, you, you're, you're a little bit not surprised because you knew this was a test. But for Abraham, this is the moment. God's plan is revealed. You can imagine his heart just pumping. And what ends up happening is what Abraham declared, what he didn't know, when he declared to his son that, hey, you know what? God's going to provide. This is what comes true. Verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And he says, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham didn't know it at the time, but what he declared to his son, God's going to provide. That's exactly what God does. And if, if you're, if you're a a student of whether it's a movie or TV or a book, in this case, the scriptures, you have to take notes of things. When, when, when they randomly throw in a character, when they randomly throw in a remember this, when they, and, so, and so the author randomly throws in this idea that, uh, that it is, there's this saying now that on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. You got you to gotta store that. And then it finishes up, verse 15, the angel Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, I swear by myself, because there ain't nobody else to swear, swear on. He's God. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed me. And, and you remember we covered this, or David covered this verse last week. Actually, not this verse, but the promise, the original promise. And the, and the Lord himself, it says initially the angel Lord, and then it says the Lord himself here reiterates this promise. I'm going to do this. Now, th this is a hugely key, important passage. Okay? First of all, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but all three of the major monotheistic, one God religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all claim Abraham as a central figure in the faith. Every single one of them claim him as a central figure in the faith. And both, not only Christians, but both Jews and Muslims refer to the importance of Abraham's faith sacrifice. In the Quran itself, it talks about this sacrifice. Now, it doesn't specifically in the Quran say, by the way, the name of the son. And so uh, in the, in the uh, Muslim teachings, what they'll tell you is the son was Ishmael, not Isaac. Remember I was telling you the story that Abraham tried to short-circuit the process, and he had a son by his, by his servant who was able to bear children rather than his wife who was, whoops, I'm like, there I am, uh, that was not able to bear uh, children. And so they would say, you know what? The Jews later on would come and they'd mess with the text because they don't want you to know the truth. And it was Ishmael. And what I would tell you is it doesn't matter. I mean, it does. But, even, but, but it doesn't matter in, in that this event is central. It shows for them, for the Jews and for the uh, Muslims, it shows what righteousness, trusting God looks like. When the thing that you love the most, right down to being a human being, you're willing to sacrifice because you love, obey, and respect God. It's a key passage. But for us who are um, followers of Jesus, we used to call ourselves complete, completed Jews. Completed because we've been waiting for the Messiah we're completed because he did come, and it's Jesus. This passage has another meaning. Let me, let me put it this way. This is something my mom made for my dad. And you see it's some kind of needlework here. And um, I know you can't make much end of that. I'll show you the side. Don't worry. Um, but for my illustration purposes, this is the Hebrew scriptures. You can kind of make out. What is that picture of? A lion. See, you can make it out. You can make it out. This is the Hebrew scriptures. You can kind of make out. It talks about Messiah. It talks about, if you would, the Lion of Judah. But in a lot of ways, it's messy. It's a bunch of knots. It's a bunch of string. It's a bunch of, it seems random. And it seems not to, I mean, it kind of fits together, but it doesn't. And then when the Messiah um, Jesus, Yeshua is the way we pronounce it. Uh, when he comes on the scene, all of a sudden this changes to this. And you begin to see things clearer. So, we're going to race through this a little bit. 
Um, I'm used to speaking a lot longer than David, so um, you're going to really be glad when he comes back. So what I want to do is I want to go over the plan of God. You see, I, I want you to see what they see is this, but I want you to know that there is a plan, the other side. He has the other side in mind. And so here's, here's some of the knots and wood and stitching of the Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 2 said this, remember, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom, lo whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. This is what we find out after Jesus comes, what God's intention was all. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says this. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. Remember, God says, take your son, Abraham, your only son. Why is it so important that it was that son? Why couldn't it have been Ishmael? Because he was second best. That might not have been right. May not have been good parenting, but it was true. Take, take the, the, your, the only son that you and Sarah had together. Take that one. And it says, you want to know how much God loves you? He took the one and only himself. He sent his one and only son into the world. He left heaven and came to the, into the form of the very thing that he created that, uh, into the world that we might live through him. This is love. You want to know what love is? This is it. Not that we love God. Not that Abraham followed through. But that God loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, this is, this, the, the, the knots and the stitching of the Hebrew scriptures, what it, what it reveals in the New Testament is that God all along said, hey, you know that that offering that shows love, I got an offering of love for you. You know that offering that, that's supposed to cover over and, and, and eventually actually take away sin? I got the final one for you. And it's not going to be a human son. It's not going to be my second best. He could have created anything or anyone. Why can it not be? Why can't the Messiah be Muhammad, Joseph Smith? Buddha. Why can't it be any of those things? Because that's not God's best. That's not God's best. It doesn't cost him anything. I mean, of real value. The only thing that God has that's of any value is himself. That's why he swears by himself. And that is what he gave. Here's the knots and stitchings. 22 verse 7. Remember, Isaac asked the question, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamp for the birth offering, my son. Romans 3.26 did this. He, being God, did it. Did it what? Sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. He sent his son what? To demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's exactly what Abraham tells Isaac. Listen, God demands a sacrifice and he's also going to provide the sacrifice. And we, for most of culture um, um, or history, culture has really emphasized um, justice, and um, they kind of argue over grace, forgiveness. We live in a culture in the West where we emphasize grace, we kind of talk a little bit about justice. And, and, and grace is one of those things we all want, we, none of us really want justice unless it's done to us. So... Just for illustration's sake, let's just say that we're all being a little deceived that Mr. David Collister's 
out and about robbing your home today, stealing your identity. And I know that's not true because Cindy's here and he's not smart enough to do that himself. So, <laughs> But for argument's sake, he's caught red-handed. All the evidence comes out. There's just no way around it. He did it, and he stands before the judge. He says, I'm guilty. I meant to do it. Um, I know it's caused heartache in their life. I know there's irreparable damage to their credit. I know this, that, and the other thing. But I'm a poor pastor, and I have these two kids. And the, and the judge goes, I get it. Life's tough. You're good. We'll just call it even. Now, David's thrilled. You're not too happy. You're not too happy at all. Where's the justice in that? Where's the justice in that? And see, God is both just and the justifier. God demands that every action, every wrong action against him and against others needs to be paid for, needs to be accounted for. That is good and that is right. It is just. He doesn't just sweep it underneath the carpet. So he demands justice. He demands sacrifice. But then he looks down and says, who's going to pay that price? Not you. You can't pay that price. So I've got to pay the price. And so he demands that blood be shed, that death be known and experienced. And rather than requiring our own, he does it himself. He's both just and the justifier. The knots and stitching, verse 14, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, and on this day it said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. I love this. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 says this, then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father, David. Okay, God said to uh, Abraham, go to the area of Moriah. He went to the area of Moriah, and then he went on the mountain of Moriah, and he sacrificed Isaac. Guess what the Jews will tell you the mountain of Moriah is? It's where the temple was built. And remember, uh, uh, David just got done teaching, uh, taking us through, through the uh, book of Mark. Remember, he talks about when Jesus, he does all this stuff, and then all of a sudden he turns his eyes to Jerusalem. Why does he have to go to Jerusalem? Because that's the mountain where God will provide. See how that just comes clear? He even chose the place hundreds and hundreds of years ahead of time. He told you where he was going to do it. He told you where he was going to provide. He's pretty amazing. Last one, Hebrew knots. She says, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And this is, the, this is the big unspoken thing in the Hebrew Scriptures is everywhere God says, I'm going to bless you Jewish people, I'm going to bless you Jewish people, he adds this line, and I'm going to bless all nations through you. And every, everywhere you hear the talk of the Jewish Messiah, you know what it's about? It's about Jerusalem being set up as the capital. It's about our enemies. It's about the Muslims around Israel being defeated, and it's about there being peace for the Jewish people. But you know what? There's not a whole lot of talk. How is it a blessing to the other nations? Galatians 3, 7, 10, though, says it this way. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Guess what, you un-Jewish people? Welcome to the family. 
Scripture foresaw what God would justify the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. He's saying, I told you how I was going to do it ahead of time, so that what all nations will be blessed through you, so that those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, really quickly, let me just really quickly talk about the work of God. The work of God. How does this apply to you and me today? Other than the fact that, that it is the invitation. It is the invitation to be justified by what Jesus did, what God planned all along. So I believe in what I call full disclosure Christianity. Okay? You're going to hear a lot of folks that want to motivate you. They mean well, and they're going to tell you all the great things about following God. And there are great things. But the fact is this, full disclosure, this is what life looks like for all of us. You cannot avoid the knots and stitching. You cannot avoid the messy side. This is life, even if you're a Jesus follower. No one is exempt from the knots and stitches. No one is exempt from cars breaking down, jobs being lost, markets crashing, kids going wild, getting sick, or people in their church being selfish and mean. No one is exempt from that. No one is exempt from that. Abraham was blessed, but he also had some stuff that, oh my goodness, he had to scratch his head and said, God, what in the heck are you thinking? No one is exempt from that. The other thing, too, is that this is, we are not God. And though you can begin to see the picture in your life and how he's working, no one gets to see the complete picture on this side of glory. Only God understands the complete picture. It's the essence of him being God and you not. As soon as you, can under, as soon as you understand God, you have the wrong God. You got the wrong God. It's, it's kind of like that, that uh, scene in their Marvel thing where the one guy says, hey, I'm a God. I'm sick of this. And the Hulk grabs him and bashes him around and says, puny God. In other words, if you're a God, then you're no God at all. If you can measure God, if you can understand him, if you can box him in and he'll just work the way you want him to, you don't have God at all. But the Bible says this, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things, and in all things, God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. This happens for all those. See, the question is this, is God working out the mess in your life for your good because you follow him? Or is he working out, or is your life simply another footnote in somebody else's life who follows him that he's working out? It's your choice. You can join them. Like Abraham, do you trust God in the, in the knots and stitching of your everyday life? Do you trust him? Do you trust that he's doing something you don't get to see all the time? But he's a good God who loves you, and he will work it out. And are you willing to live for his purpose? It says the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that was the thing. Abraham had to trust that God had a purpose, and God's purpose was better than his own will for his own life. Because it would have been very easy for Abraham to say, you know what, God? I got the heir. 
we're good now. I, I got it from here. Because this whole sacrifice your son deal, loony. I mean, really. And then where would the end of the story been? Where would the end of the story been? Where's the end of your story? Where's the end of your story? I believe if you trust Jesus, God in the flesh, as prophesied and spelled out clearly in the Hebrew Scriptures, explained in the new Scriptures after Jesus, that you will not find a life that's perfect or you live happily ever after, but it is a life that is full and abundant and has a purpose that will carry you through whatever it is for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you. Thank you for that kind of love, Lord. The kind of love that um, loves us enough to meet us right where we're at, but also loves us so much that you don't leave us where we're at. Will you help us trust you and help the areas of doubt that don't want to trust you. Would you do that good work in and through us this day in Jesus' name?